Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 2, Uncertainty. Last time, I talked about the background of the situation that China faced leading up to the collapse of the imperial Qing government. I talked about two of the early protagonists of that era, Yuan Shikai and Dr. Sun Yat-sen. I went through the 1911 Xinhai Revolution that resulted in the ending of the Qing imperial government and the beginning of the Republic of China. I further discussed the geopolitics of that time as it affected China. I left the episode debating what the 1911 revolution meant for China. In this episode, I want to begin to talk about the provisional government that immediately replaced the destroyed Qing dynasty. I'll talk about Yuan Shikai and how he rose to become a very powerful figure and then faded to nothing. We will see China's failed experiment with representative government and liberal democracy and constitutional government, as well as a return to a monarchy. In the spring of 1912, Yuan Shikai was the president of the Republic of China. He had considerable executive powers. Impeaching him would not be easy. He was the commander-in-chief of the military, and he had broad powers of appointment. He was required, by the written constitution he swore an oath to, to share some of his responsibilities with the prime minister and a cabinet that he appointed with the concurrence of the parliament or the National Assembly. The first prime minister was a close ally of his, in his name, Tang Xiaoyi. The new National Assembly or parliament was seated in Beijing in April 1913, along with the provincial local assemblies. The Guomindang had won clear majorities in both houses. Clearly, its close identity with the recent revolution was one of the key reasons for its success. There was also some support for the concepts of federalism, the concept of provincial autonomy, which was something entirely new to China. The Guomindang's main political architect for its gains in the legislative assemblies was a man by the name of Song Jiaoren. At this early phase of the experiment, Yuan Shikai went along with everything. He went along with the National Assembly. And he and the National Assembly 
and local assemblies seemed to work together. Those halcyon days, however, soon melted away. As early as 1913, Song Jiaoren was publicly attacking Iran Shirkai and openly advocating for lessening his executive powers. At Yuan Shirkai's direction, Song Jiaoren was assassinated in Shanghai on March 10, 1913. Obviously, the two were political enemies. But the assassination demonstrated the political gulf between Yuan Shirkai and the legislative bodies. The Guomindang's election victories in early 1913 presented Yuan Shirkai with a threat to his executive powers. Rather than retreat or try to find some compromise with the Legislative Assembly, he prepared for a fight. Song Jiaoren's assassination began a rapid degeneration of the political climate. Yuan Shirkai had spats over revenue bonds and the flow of supplies and with the provinces over a myriad of issues. Song Jiaoren's death caused more resistance to the national government. Up to the moment of this time, Sun Yat-sen had supported Yuan Shirkai. But Jiaoren's murder convinced Sun Yat-sen that Yuan Shirkai had to go. Sun Yat-sen tried to get military assistance to force out Yuan Shirkai. The military forces, however, were either too dispersed in each province or under, under the control of Yuan Shirkai loyalist. The so-called Second Revolution began in July 1913 and only took seven weeks to suppress. The coup de grace by Yuan Shirkai was his approval of a loan from a consortium of foreign banks. Six nations were behind the consortium. England, France, Germany, the United States, Japan, and Russia. After the 1911 revolution, the outstanding loans to China had fallen behind. There were also the loans left over from the Qing government. Also included were the unpaid reparation amounts from the Boxer Rebellion, as well as the damages from the 1911 revolution. China needed to restructure or refinance these debts, and it needed the money for expenses. The consortium insisted on placing their personnel in China, to assist in the organization of the revenue sources and to repay the loans. That request by the consortium was the primary objection by many Chinese against these loans. Yuan Shirkai allegedly tried to borrow money from sources outside of the consortium, but found the way blocked. Of course, the demand for foreign involvement in China was one of the central criticisms of the Qing dynasty. The Guomindang objected to the loans, as well as many of Yuan Shikai's supporters. Yet, in April of 1913, without the advice or consent from the parliament, he approved the loans. Yuan Shikai reasoned he needed the money for his impending fight with the nationalists. 
and China desperately needed the money. Yuan Shikai, however, had further alienated everyone by not seeking Parliament's advice and consent for the loans, which he was required to do. The National Assembly, or Parliament, was upset that the consortium would accept Yuan Yuan Shikai's illegal process to obtain the loans. That was a legitimate question. Why would these foreign nations pursue an obvious improper course for the approval of the loans? I mean, why risk the claim later that the loans were improper? The answer is that we know Yuan Shikai had suggested or hinted to the consortium that he had a plan to deal with the National Assembly or otherwise negate their authority. Yuan Shikai urged, say, convinced by bribery, non-Guomindang, non-Nationalist Party members to coalesce and weaken the Guomindang majority. He also ordered the removal of the Guomindang military personnel and provincial chiefs. He ordered his military to occupy parts of China, intending to intimidate his enemies. One of those provinces, Jiangsu, went so far to rebel and secede from Peking's control. The provincial assembly there authorized its former chief, a person that had been dismissed by Yuan Shikai, his name, Li Liajun, to go after Yuan Shikai. This failed, and the disruption quickly dispersed. Dr. Sun Yat-sen fled to Japan. The defeat showed that Yuan Shikai had many advantages. His efforts to unify China seemed to help his reputation. But it was also clear he was now a virtual dictator. After he cleansed China of Republican nationalism, he was never more powerful. The provinces no longer had as much autonomy as they had earlier. All major decisions were made in Peking. By early 1914, he had dismantled all the provincial assemblies. The 1913 revolution or uprising, whatever you want to call it, did settle the issue that revolutionary fervor would no longer be the only basis to move forward. Arguably, the liberal concepts of representative government federalism, and constitutional government had not completely won over everyone in China. But neither, as we will soon learn, was everyone sold on the notion of a strong central government run by an emperor. The next couple of years would be an incubator. China was not done with experimentation. Yuan Shikai thought he had a better way not necessarily the traditional imperial way, but maybe something he had in mind, something different, maybe a hybrid sort of arrangement that might work. During all of these events, Japan maintained a cautious attitude. She officially supported Yuan Shikai and his efforts. After all, Japan 
was one of the consortium nations, consortium lender nations. But there were still many Japanese officials sympathetic to the Republican revolutionaries. It was those officials that helped Sun Yat-sen and other Chinese revolutionaries participate in the 1913 disputes and to escape to Japan when those efforts failed. As it were, as it became, the Japanese were beginning to dislike Yuan Shikai and his tactics. Chinese officials hassled and abused Japanese and even killed three Japanese at Nanjing while, while suppressing an uprising there. When World War I broke out in July of 1914, China issued a 24-point declaration proclaiming her neutrality and prohibited belligerents from being in China or in Chinese waters. Chinese territory was off-limits to belligerents. For Japan, World War I provided her with an opportunity to stabilize her Chinese interests. Japan's Manchurian interests it acquired from Russia were nearing their termination. Additionally, Japan had not forgotten Germany's actions against Japan in the Triple Intervention. Japan was now, or then, a big enough international power that it could push around Germany. Against the advice of its ally, England, Japan, in August 1914, demanded Germany hand over to Japan, within a month, Jiaozhou on the Shandong Peninsula in China, without compensation, whereby Japan said they were going to restore it to China. When Germany did not respond to Japan, Japan then declared war on Germany and blockaded the ports belonging to the German leasehold. I encourage anyone to look at a map of the area. You will quickly see the strategic advantage of holding the Shandong Peninsula, especially when you know that Japan already controlled the Liaoning Peninsula to its north and across the Bohai Sea. You can also see the utter disaster the foreign control of these peninsulas was for China. In addition to Japan's sea blockade, it requested permission from China to launch a land invasion of the peninsula through Chinese territory. China only reluctantly agreed on the thin promise that the Japanese would return Shandong Peninsula to China. Germany quickly surrendered the peninsula and its leasehold to the Japanese. Keep in mind that Japan knew it would have a free hand in this area of the world because Europe was involved in World War I. Japan then had not only its Manchurian interests in China that would shortly terminate, but it also had the newly acquired Shandong Peninsula. In January 1915, Japan 
presented Yuan Shirkai with her list of 21 demands. The Japanese offered as a quid pro quo to China that if it accepted the 21 demands, Japan would control the Chinese revolutionaries and students that were then exiled in Japan. Basically, the Japanese wanted a greater say in China of its internal operations. Some might even go so far to say that it wanted to annex China. Yuan Shikai played some hardball with the Japanese. The, ja- the negotiations were, were kept secret, but word leaked out to the Americans. The United States knew what the Japanese were demanding and the tactics it was using. The negotiations dragged on for nearly 90 days and provided the Chinese plenty of time to spread rumors about Japanese tricks, tactics, and bullying. The Americans were offended and relations turned sour with Japan. In May 1915, Yuan Shikai finally accepted a watered-down version of the, of the demands. In the end, no one came away as a victor from this event. The Japanese were seen as insensitive, clumsy in the negotiation approach, bullies, and their demands seemed anachronistic, something more suited 20 years before in a more imperialistic age. While China had not really given anything to Japan that it did not already have, Yuan Shikai still came across as weak, and he further humiliated the Chinese. In August of 1915, a campaign began to declare Yuan Shikai an emperor. That was rather remarkable, considering it had only been a few years from the demise of the last emperor dynasty. Yuan Shikai believed, however, China needed strong central government and that an emperor could lead the way. Perhaps the ambiguity or the uncertainty of the meaning of the 1911 revolution left the issue of monarchy open. It was viewed by some that the 1911 revolution was more anti-Manchu rather than anti-monarchy. Perhaps. Maybe. It was clear that in 1915 that none of the movements in China had convinced the people. Ordinary Chinese did not believe that much had changed since the last rulers. Their daily lives were largely unaffected by the pros and cons between a republic and a monarchy. So as the year 1916 approached, the country was undecided. It was apparent, however, that no one not much liked the idea of Yuan Shikai as the emperor. There were numerous organized and determined efforts to oppose him. Four nations did not like the, did not like the idea of an emperor. By March of 1916, these pressures led to him abandoning his emperor plans. Also, by that time, many provinces broke away from Yuan Shikai. And in June of the year 1916, he died. His death left unanswered who would govern China. 
the Nationalists, brought up the 1912 Constitution and tried to revive the 1913 Parliament. Other leaders wanted to break away from the arrangement in Peking. The vigor of representative government, it seemed, from the 1911 revolution was gone, and maybe it would never return. One could say the two failed political experiments of the early republic representative government and dictatorship had canceled out each other. China was clearly undecided. Duan Chiri was the prime minister at the time of Yuan Shikai's death. And he moved quickly to strengthen the executive power. He conflicted with Li Yuanhong, who was the successor president under the Constitution. Duan Shiri wanted to strengthen the executive power. One way he could do that was to cozy up to Japan. In the next episode, I want to get into the political aftermath of Yuan Shikai's death. I also want to discuss China's role in World War I and how that affected her. We know that World War I ended with the Treaty of Versailles, and we will learn that that was bad news for China. I need to remind everyone that this same era was part of the continuation of the Beiyang or warlord period. So some confabulation of that era is going to be necessary, and I will provide it. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.